Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday morning worship hour, I guess is what we call this now. In the in the world and uh, the time of live streaming, yeah, uh, terminology doesn't mean anything. Time doesn't mean anything. Everything has uh, has changed, and hopefully soon we can get back to some sense of normalcy and actually have people sitting in the pews inside this building and I don't have to be talking into a microphone in an empty building, but we do what we have to do. And the most important thing is, is we make the best of it. We make the most of the situation, and we do that by trying to get back to God's Word. Now, we have a challenge in front of us this morning, and this one, this is going to be a little frustrating and trying to put this all back together, but we're, we're going to have to do our parts. The last time that we were in Romans chapter 8, the last time we were in Romans chapter 8, was December the 20th, 2020. So a year ago, okay, well, not quite a year ago. You get, last year, we were in the book of Romans chapter 8, December the 20th. Today is January the 3rd. Now, I can almost guarantee that no one, probably even including myself, can remember everything we talked about all the way back on December the 20th. A lot has happened since then especially in this whole COVID world where time seems to just lose all meaning. It it probably feels like it's been a year, two years since we were in Romans chapter eight. So now I have to figure out, okay, I don't want to go back and re-preach that message. So I want to advance it, but then how much do we need to, to, to go back and review? Where do I start again? How do we work through this? So we're, we're, I'm going to try to put this together. It's going to be a little disjointed. I I go ahead and apologize right from the start. I'm going to try to do my best. Hopefully this all will make sense. And and, and I hope that you will at least appreciate what, at least appreciate the attempt to get us back into Romans so that we can then maintain a consistency. It's, It's really difficult when you're like, that, that's why if I, if I realize, if I think there's going to be a delay, what I tend to do is like, okay, we finish, say, chapter seven, then, then, then we'll go do something else before we start the next chapter. But once you start the next chapter and then you have to, there's a delay for whatever reason. Oh, wow. That messes things up so bad. It just, it makes it all disjointed and broken. And it's like nothing flows right. It doesn't feel right. And even after I'm done preaching, I'm like, it wasn't right. And it's just, Ugh, it's miserable. So hopefully I can find some way to make this feel half, it makes some kind of sense. And if you remember what we had to do, we got to Romans chapter eight. And before we could really get to the text, we had to deal with some, some issues and some difficulties uh, with Romans chapter eight. And we had, we had to uh, kind of work through some of them. Now, I'm going to just kind of briefly remind you of some of the things we had to deal with. The first thing we had to deal with, and I'll just remind you, and this, I'm not going to go through all of them right now. Some of them I'll mention as we work through what we have for us today. But remember, the very first thing was this. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 basically starts out with the word, therefore. All right. Now, the King James put, there is, therefore, but the there is in, is in italics, meaning it's not in the original. So, therefore. And as soon as we saw the therefore, there was lots of debate of what that therefore refers to. Some say that therefore goes way back into to the earlier parts of Romans. Some say therefore is everything that came before in the first seven chapters. And then there's the idea that, no, I think that therefore really goes back right there to chapter seven. Because if you remember, and I'm going to repeat this again in a minute, in chapter seven, we were confronted with something. We were confronted with the inability of the law. We were confronted with what the law could not do. And it left them, in, and, and, and not only confronted with what the law couldn't do, we were confronted with, once again, the reality of what is true inside our, of ourselves. And that's why Paul ends Romans chapter 7 with, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? How can we be delivered? Uh, how can we be saved? Because the law is unable, is incapable of saving us because of the depravity inside of us. The things we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we end up doing. What can we do? We are in bad shape. And if you remember, I got to pick up my iPad here. 
If you remember, this is what we saw about the, we in Romans chapter 7. We, we learned about the authority of the law. The law has this authority that we cannot escape unless we die, all right? Uh, we have the ministry of the law, okay? And when we talked about the ministry of the law, we found out that the law reveals sin. That's what the law does. It reveals sin. It arouses sin. It literally cre- it arouses sin inside of us. The law doesn't uh, stop it. It ar- arouses it. Uh, the law kills us. Uh, we talked about the inability of the law, uh, that the law, what the law cannot enable you to do good. The law cannot enable you to do good in any way, shape, or form. You're incapable of it. You're incapable of doing good, and the law cannot help you do good. So the law puts us in a very bad situation. And remember, at the end of chapter 7, Paul says, again, verse 24, a wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of death? He's looking for help, and then he gives us a hint of, of hope. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And he starts talking that there is some hope, and the hope is found in Jesus Christ. And that, and then we, we can get into a discussion about our position and practice, and we can get into all of that discussion. But that ultimately leads us into chapter 8. So I think the therefore goes directly back to chapter 7. I really do. Could it have... Does it pick up some of the ideas that came before? Well, you could argue that many of the ideas in chapter 7 had been repeated previously. So you could argue that there's a little bit of that. But I think the the, the force, the emphasis is on chapter 7. And that brings us to chapter 8, all right? Now, in chapter 8, we're, I'm just going to start working through this carefully, all right? I, instead of giving you, how, how can I state this? Let me state it this way. Romans chapter 8. <laughs> this is going to sound, I know what you're, now, now that I get ready to say it, it sounds silly and it sounds foolish because I've said this at the beginning of every chapter that we've studied. Romans chapter 8, we all know what I'm getting ready to say, is going to present us with some very difficult situations and some very difficult things to try to understand. Every chapter in Romans has done that. And we're going to have to figure it out. And just I just want to remind you of the major emphasis that I keep really trying to put forth is that one of the one of the the, the fundamental truths that I think is critical into understanding a lot of things in Romans chapter eight and a lot of things in a lot of other places in the New Testament is this idea of my position versus my practice. Remember my position before God and. I know this sounds like a broken record, but I have to keep saying it. Oh, and I know that is a dated reference. So I know vinyl is making a comeback. It's still a dated reference. It sounds like your digital file is corrupted and it just keeps replaying the same section of that digital file over and over and over. That doesn't quite flow with saying like a broken record. It doesn't, but you get the idea. I feel like I'm just repeating myself over and over and over and over and over and over again, but we have to. To have this understanding, I think, to even grasp a good portion of the New Testament. Let me state it again. There is the positional reality that you have because you are a Christian. As a Christian, there is a positional reality. And what is that positional reality? Let me state it again. That positional reality is that before God, your position, you are, are you ready? Obedient. Why? Because the passive and active obedience of Christ has been accredited to your account, imputed to your account. So you are perfectly obedient. You're not kind of obedience, obedient, kind of disobedient. You're perfectly obedient in your position. Not only are you obedient, you are perfectly holy. Why are you perfectly holy? Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ accredited to your account. You are um, obedient you are holy and you are completely forgiven. All of your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. You are without sin. You are without sin. You are holy and you are obedient. That's your position. That is your position. But in your practice, you're not those things. 
You're not obedient. You're disobedient. You're not holy. You're far from it. You are a sinner. And practically, you sinned time and time and time again. Now, your sin is still forgiven, but that's primarily your positional thing. In your life, you still sin. And guess what you experience in your life? People won't let you forget your sin. People will bring up your sin. People will throw your sin in your face. You can't get away from it. Even Christians will do it to you, right? You you, you know that. But in your position, guess what? All of that is taken care of. In practice, you are uh, well, you're a hot mess. And, and, and you you and 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 in practice, you are you you're you are just broken. You are just yeah, you you are all kinds of things. You're a hypocrite, you are a liar, you fall short, you don't glorify God, you don't love others. Over, I mean, all kinds of things that we do wrong. And we have to realize these two things. And we see a little bit of that in chapter 7, at the end of chapter 7. Again, look what Paul says. I know we keep going back to chapter 7, but sometimes you have to go backwards before you can go forward. All right, Romans chapter 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law but of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. He's talking about this duality, this, this contradiction. In one sense, I'm, 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 sir, I'm obeying the law, but in the other, I'm serving the law of sin, as he says, um, with, uh, but with the flesh, the law of sin. How can both be true? Because one is your position, one is your practice. I, look, I, I, I've done everything in my power throughout my Christian life to try to understand some of the things that appear contradictory within Christianity. And this explanation is the only thing that makes Christianity comes close to making sense. Because how can you tell Christians, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, behold, all things are new. How can we, how can we even utter those words and think that that has anything to do with the practical reality of the average Christian you know and I know? Forget the average Christian. Stop what you're doing right now. Go look in the mirror. How about that Christian looking back at you? Are you a new creature? Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. Give me a break. You're just a sinner. So it has to be true positionally. Now, so what is this? So if we're in we're such bad shape, we're sinners practically. We're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners, we're sinners. Then what is the hope? The hope is in Christ. The hope is Christ. And so look at what happens in chapter 8. Chapter 8, and I don't know, I, I may change the way, I'm, I'm not going to outline the whole chapter, but we're just going to try to uh, build an outline as we move through these verses, all right? Because we've got some very difficult things to try to unpack as we move forward. But let's just see how far we can get, all right? Let's see how far we can get. Here we go. The first thing we are confronted with in chapter 8, I'm going to say we are confronted with an amazing reality. We have an amazing reality. And this is so important. Paul has already acknowledged in chapter 7 the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, those are the things he does. He's already acknowledged that uh, he's a wretched man. He's already acknowledged that he's a sinner. Now, you can sit there and say, well, I bet you Paul wasn't really committing any big sins. He was committing big sins. He Obviously, he was committing some. You don't know if it was big or small, but it, he, he felt he was a wretched man. So he felt he was pretty bad off. And you can say, well, it was probably little insignificant things. That's your, I don't know why we have to try to downplay them. He was a sinner and he was a wretched man. But in spite of that, truth, that reality, that that's what we are. We're wretched people who don't do the things we're supposed to do and end up doing the things we don't want to do. I don't know why we, we, we so don't want that to be true. We so want Christianity to be this idea that now that I'm a Christian, I'm better than everyone else. I'm more godly than everyone else because we've been sold that time and time again. But the reality is we're so messed up still. So with that background, then we get confronted with an amazing reality. Even though we're still messed up, even though we're still broken, even though we're still sinners, here is the amazing, the uh, as I put it, the amazing reality. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is right now, therefore, no condemnation. We are not condemned. We don't have there. We cannot be condemned. There is no condemnation. 
Um, I, I, I put this in my notes, and I think I got this from a commentary. A commentary. Uh, the verse does not say no mistakes or no failures. It doesn't say, hey, therefore there is no more mistakes, there's no more failure, there's no more sin. It does not say that. It says, listen, Christians fail, Christians make mistakes, and Christians sin. Abraham lied about his wife, David committed adultery, murder, and all the other things. Peter tried to kill a man with a sword. To be sure, there were consequences for some of their actions, definitely. Okay, but listen, they did not suffer condemnation. There is no condemnation. No, zero condemnation. And I want to make this very clear. There is no condemnation in irregardless of the reality of your failure as a Christian. There is therefore no condemnation. It has nothing to do, you cannot say, there is therefore no condemnation for all those people who, who really do the right things. That Now, I know that there's a part here in Romans 8, 1, we talked about it, one of the problems, that there's a phrase there that some people are offers as a condition. We'll, 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 we'll disregard that in just a minute. We'll, we'll take care of that in a minute. I want you just to understand that if you are a Christian, there is no condemnation. You may receive condemnation from your kids. You may, your kids, you may receive condemnation from your parents. You may receive condemnation from strangers, from coworkers, from people who know, know you, people who knew you. You may receive condemnation from everyone around you, but there is therefore no condemnation that is the, the, the amazing reality that we are confronted with. How can it be that there is therefore no condemnation when in chapter seven, we end with, oh, wretched man that I am. How do you get from, oh, wretched man that I am. Therefore, there's no condemnation. How do you get there? there there's got to be an answer. And the answer obviously cannot be found in us. Well, well, look at the answer. It's very important here. So there's the amazing reality. There is no condemnation. Now, how does this happen? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That is how it happens. If you want to, if you want to experience the reality, uh, the amazing reality that there is therefore now no condemnation, you have to be in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, I'm sorry, there is condemnation, there is wrath, there is judgment, there is eternal separation. You only can find it in Christ. And that phrase is very important. Now, I, there, I, there's a lot of different counts on how many times the phrase appears. And part of the problem, if you put in the phrase in Christ, say in the Blue Letter Bible app concordance, you get like, I don't know, 224, I think it's 200 occurrences of in Christ. But it's, it, it, that will give you a verse where the word in and the word Christ both appear in the same verse. That's not what we're referring to. We're referring to that phrase in Christ. So, so I, I, for the best I can figure out, it, it's got to be over at least 60, maybe over 70 times where the phrase in Christ put together that way is used. It's a very important phrase used in the New Testament, all right? And when we speak of this phrase, listen, it speaks of our union with Christ. It speaks of him being our identity. When, when we say we are in Christ Jesus, we are, we are united to him. I am in him. And therefore, now think of it this way. I'm in Christ. So when God sees me, he sees Christ because I'm in Christ. He, so guess what? If God sees, when he looks to me, he sees Christ. It, think of it this way. When we, we also often think of the idea of the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And that inside are the broken tablets of the commandments. And when God looks down, he, he can see that. But you put blood on the mercy seat and God sees the blood. And then judgment, in a sense, is passed over, was averted because of the blood on the mercy seat, right? Well, it, when God looks down, he can either see me and all of the brokenness in me, the laws that I've broken, the sin, the depravity, the, the lust, the, all the, the sin that is inside all of us. But if I'm in Christ Jesus, he doesn't, he sees Christ. And when he sees Christ, what does he see? Well, look at the times God speaks of his son. 
Look at the different times when God speaks of his son. What is he? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. When he sees me, he sees the, a son in whom he is well pleased. I'm his adopted son and, I, and, and I am, he is well pleased in me because I'm in Christ Jesus. He sees the whole, uh, Christ was without sin. I, so therefore I'm without sin. Christ was perfectly obedient. I'm perfectly obedient. I, I'm all of those things because in Christ Jesus, I'm covered by the blood. My sins are gone. The righteousness is there and the obedience is there. That's what he sees. If I'm in Christ Jesus, if I'm not in Christ, then I'm in trouble. And if I'm in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. The amazing, we see the amazing reality. There's therefore no condemnation. And we see, and I apologize for my voice. And we see the, uh, how does this happen? It's by being in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't want to go back through it again, but I just want to just deal with the controversy really quick because look at verse one. So we have the amazing reality, no condemnation. We have how this reality is accomplished by being in Christ Jesus. Now, we have this controversy because it describes who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, some say this is a description and that th- this is how it works. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ Jesus. That's how it's there. But if you truly are, if you truly are in Christ, if you truly are a person who's not condemned, if you truly are, and the only way to know if you truly are in Christ and you truly are not receiving any condemnation, what you look to is not to Christ. What you look to is this. Um, verse, uh, the end of verse eight, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the way I know that I have no condemnation is I have to look to myself and go, I, walk, I, I don't walk after the flesh, I walk after the spirit. So if I walk after the flesh, then I'm not in Christ and, I, and I'm gonna be condemned. I have to be the one who walks after the spirit. Well, that seems to go against the whole point, right? That seems, to, in fact, look at the end of chapter seven. Now, please note, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Look what Paul said of himself. I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he seems to be even acknowledging that he still serves with his flesh, the law of sin. Well, it says we walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, wait a minute. So you're saying that according to Romans 8, if that is a description and it, it we use it as a test, then that means Paul himself Therefore, it was under condemnation. Well, there's a couple of issues. Number one, most translations, that phrase does not appear in chapter uh, in chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, let me read it to you from other translations just so that you know. The other translations uh, read it this way. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. New Living Translation. Uh, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. English Standard Version, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That next phrase is not there. Uh, the words who walk not, etc., do not belong here according to best manuscripts. There are no conditions for us to meet, right? So some say it doesn't belong there, but even if we say it belongs there, the only way we can understand this is let make it very clear. What is the reality? The amazing reality is there's no condemnation. How does it happen? I'm in Christ Jesus. Now, you could say, well, if I'm in Christ Jesus, what does that look like? Well, if I'm in Christ Jesus, I walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Well, I walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. This has to be referring to my position. If we say that, that those phrase belongs there, it has to be talking about positionally, I don't walk after the flesh. I walk after the spirit. Practically, I'm still going to look, everyone's going to walk after the flesh practically to some level because think of all the things that pertain to the flesh, selfishness, pride, ego, bitterness, unforgiveness, a lack of love. That's all fleshly selfishness. We're all going to do that. So it can't be that, hey, if I'm in Christ, I'm never going to do those things. That would make absolutely no sense. So what do we have? We have the amazing reality. There is no condemnation. Praise God for that. How did that happen? I'm in Christ. I'm, uni- I'm united to Christ. When God sees me, he sees Christ, right? 
He's in Christ. All right. Um, now let's go to verse two. Let's go to verse two. And because the last part of verse one, like I said, most say that it doesn't belong there. Now, what, what, start, what starts happening in verse two? This is where I wish everybody was at the church. All right, here we go. <clears throat> verse two. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. What starts happening here in verse two is something that we need to think about and we, and we, uh, and we need to start really trying to figure out, all right? Because... I think this is I think this is very important. All right. Now <clears throat> sorry, I'm taking a drink of water. There we go. All right. Starting in verse two, I'm going to argue we start having a contrast established. We have a contrast established. We have the reality, we have the how the reality is accomplished. I'm in Christ. But now a contrast begins to be established here. And we could we could argue about how how many verses this contrast takes place in, but before we start trying to take that apart, let's just start looking at what's being contrasted and see if you see it, all right? Look at verse 2. For the law of the spirit of the life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now we have introduced here a different law, a different law, which raises all kinds of questions, but a different law here. Please know, it's, and it's being contrasted. We have the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of the life in Christ Jesus had made me free from the other law, the law of sin and death. There's two laws contrasted here. And we have to understand this law. And it, it seems that what it's doing is that this new law, that now that I'm in Christ, there's a new law. There's a new reality, which frees me from that old law. And we know what the old law did. Remember what the old law did? We've already established and we talked about what the old law did. What did the old law do? The old, the old law revealed sin, it aroused sin, and then it killed, and that the old law was in a, in a, uh, had the, was, the, was unable, that's the right way of putting it, was unable to do anything for us. It could not make us good. It could not free us. So now I'm, here's the reality. There's no condemnation. That's the reality. How did that happen? I'm in Christ Jesus. And now here's this contrast. Because I'm in Christ Jesus, because now there's this new reality that I'm experiencing, there's, there's something that's going on. There's a contrast that we need to understand. There's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and it's made me free from the law of sin and death. I'm now free from that law. I'm not bound by that. That law, the law of sin and death, it no longer, it no longer condemns me. It no longer kills me. It no longer does these things to me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And there's this new law that is operating. Here's how one commentary put it. All right. And I think this is very important. Um, you have been made free from the law of sin and death. You now have life in the spirit. You have moved into a whole new sphere of life in Christ. The law of sin and death is what Paul described in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. The law of the spirit of life is described in Romans chapter 8. The law no longer has any jurisdiction over you. You are dead to the law and are free from the law. We're now dead and we're now free from it. We're free. It, it doesn't, we're not bound by it. It doesn't kill us. It doesn't condemn us. We are set free from it because we are in Christ Jesus. Because we are in Christ Jesus, we now have, and think we could, we could, we could, we could, well, we could structure it a different way, but that's okay. So here's what I want you to see. We have the reality, no condemnation. 
We have the the, 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 the cause of this reality or how this reality came to, to pass. What, what brought this about? In fact, how did I put it in my notes? Um, hang on. I put it in my notes. I, I like standing at the pulpit where I can just look down and I don't have to pick up one thing. Um, how did this happen? Because we're in Christ Jesus. How did this happen? How did this reality happen? And now we see this contrast. And the contrast here is, is ob- I mean, the contrast is to me very clear. It's between these two laws, and we're under a new law. And because we're under this new law, guess what? I'll just state it. The contrast is uh, between the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death, right? That's the contrast. And what he wants us to understand in this contrast is at least, number one, we are free from the law of sin and death. We're free. We're free from it. We're not under it. We're not condemned by it. We're free from it because we're in Christ Jesus, Right now, look at verse three. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. Now, please note what law? That's the the law in Romans chapter seven. That's the law of sin and death. It was weak through the flesh. Again, it's drawing this contrast. It's drawing this contrast between the two. All right. So there's the contrast between the law and spirit. And the first thing he wants us to understand is the contrast is this. Uh, here's the first contrast. The contrast is we we now have freedom under the new law and we're no longer under bondage. The new law were free, the old law we were we were we were in bondage and we were condemned and we in a sense were dead. So so there's the first major contrast. It's the contrast of freedom versus death and bondage. The next contrast is in verse 3. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, right? So please note that here's the contrast. The old law was weak. It, the old law was unable to do anything. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. All right. What is what is the contrast here? It's a contrast between the the law of sin and death. It couldn't do anything. Couldn't make us righteous. Couldn't couldn't accomplish righteousness in us. Could not bring about righteousness. Could not bring us bring good. But this under this new law, the law of the spirit of of life in Christ. What happens? Well, this is what happens. God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, you can't say the righteousness of the law is going to be fulfilled in my practical living because we know that's not the case. I'm never going to fulfill the law practically, ever, under any circumstance, especially if we understand the law to not just condemn the external behavior, but it even condemns the internal behavior, then we are done. So how is it fulfilled in us? It's fulfilled in this, by God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned the sin and then ultimately his righteousness is fulfilled in us because it's imputed to us. And now it says, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Again, that walking not after the flesh, but after the spirit has to be in our position. I, I, I know that 99% of pastors will say, oh, no, 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 no. This is what, because we're, because we're in Christ, we, don't, we no longer walk after the flesh. We walk after the spirit. And you can say that from the pulpit in every church in America 5,000 times. But guess what the people in your church are doing? They're walking after the flesh day in and day out. They do, and, and you can't deny that because the works of the flesh are manifest in them over and over and over. We see anger, bitterness, strife. We, we see people doing things through vainglory, not putting others before themselves. We see the, the, the evidence of the flesh in the church all the time. And every time something scandalous happens, everyone is shocked and everyone's like, oh, well, what did you expect? We're all walking after the flesh. Now, it doesn't excuse it, but we shouldn't be shocked by it, right? And then verse five, 
For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. All right. Now, again, for they, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Again, we, I know we want to make this in a practical way that, hey, we, we don't do this, but we, we got to be honest with ourselves about the reality. Now, let me go back to this commentary and read all of this together. All right, here we go. You have been made free from the law of sin and death. You now have life in the spirit. You have moved into a whole new sphere of life in Christ. The law of sin and death is what Paul described in Romans chapter 7, 7 through 25. The law of the spirit of life is described in Romans 8. The law no longer has any jurisdiction over you. You're dead to the law. Romans 7, 4 and free from the law in Romans 8, 2. All right. Now, hang on. My iPad skipped here. Right, um, the law cannot condemn you. Why? Because Christ has already suffered that condemnation for you on the cross. The law could not save; it can only condemn. But God sent His Son to save us and do what the law could not do. Jesus did not come as an angel; He came as a man. He did not come in sinful flesh, for that would have made Him a sinner. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh as a man. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Uh, The law of double jeopardy states that a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime. Since Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and since you are in Christ, God will not condemn you. All right? Now, this is what some people do with verse 4. Now, this is very important. Now, we've already talked about that the righteousness that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, I want to just show you a contrasting view here, right? Now, listen carefully. All right, we're at 38 minutes. All right, let's, let's try to work through this, right? I know this is a difficult section of scripture, but we have to work through this, all right? We have to be patient and, and do this. If we don't do this kind of work, then we're doing a disservice to the, we shouldn't even be studying the book of Romans, all right? And I tried to warn you way back in the very first message that if we're not gonna do the work, that, that then this is not the book to study, all right? So here we go. This is what they say. The law cannot control you. The believer lives a righteous life, not in the power of the law, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The law does not have the power to produce holiness. It can only reveal and condemn sin. But the indwelling Holy Spirit enables you to walk in obedience to God's will. Now stop right here. This is what the commentaries do. And this is where I have so much trouble. According to this, what they're claiming is that what Romans 8, 4 is telling us, this is what they're claiming, is that now the Holy Spirit lives in me and now the Holy Spirit enables you and me to walk in obedience to God's will. Now stop right there. I know this is how it's preached in pretty much every church in America, but I'm sorry, I've got to throw a red flag and say that's garbage. There's just no way. If the Holy Spirit enables all of us to fulfill God's will and to be obedient to God's will, then why do we disobey? Why is sin the norm, not the exception? Sin is the norm. So how can you say now, no, look, 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 now now, here's the contrast. You were under this law. Now you're under this law and this new law is this, you know, you have the spirit of God in you and now this law will enable you to be obedient. It will enable you to obey God's will in a practical sense. There's no way that can be, there's just no way that is true. And this is where I have the biggest problem with Christianity. We sell it this way to everyone. Hey, now that you're a Christian, you're free from the bondage of sin. You can live to God. And now the Holy Spirit is empowering you so that you can obey. Well, then why do people keep sinning? Why do we have church splits splits, and Christian marriages fall apart? And and this sin and this sin and this sin and just name every sin. It's present in the church. Look at the church at Corinth. How much sin was in that church? Every every church that Paul wrote to in the New Testament, there was a million problems in those churches. Why? Because there were sinners in those churches. And what do you see in your life, in my life, in the, in the life of every church? Sin, why? It, it, this has got to mean something different 
then, oh, oh, guess what? I, look, there's now, therefore, no condemnation. Again, what did Paul say at the end of chapter 7? I mean, I'm going to keep going back to that over and over and over and over again. What did Paul say? So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The mind, that's, that's in a sense, positionally, right? This is what I serve and this is what I strive for. This is what my, I, I desire. But in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. How can Paul say that at the end of 725 and then you get down to Romans chapter 8, verse 4, and then you say that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. How can you turn around and say, wait a minute now, you can fulfill the righteousness of the law, whichever law you want to refer to, the new law, whatever, this new law can now make you obedient and righteous. And you can do it because now you have the Holy Spirit to make you obedient. Well, if we have the Holy Spirit to make us obedient, then why is there ever disobedient? Is the Holy Spirit powerful enough to make me perfect? Or is the or is the Holy Spirit just powerful enough to make me better than a rapist, a murderer, a drug addict? Like I can just find the really bad people and go, see, I'm better than those people. Woohoo! That's the power of the Holy Spirit. What really? Because there's there's Muslims who aren't those things. There's Mormons who are not those things. There's atheists who are not those things. Like, there's, there's got to be an explanation here. So let me read this to you again. All right? Because this just, this to me is just so crazy. All right? They say the law cannot control you. The believer lives a righteous life, not in the power of the law, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. The law does not have the power to produce holiness. It can only reveal and condemn sin. But the indwelling Holy Spirit enables you to walk in obedience to God's will. The righteousness that God demands in his law is fulfilled in you through the Spirit's power. So they're like, hey, those righteous demands, they are fulfilled in you by the power, no, they are fulfilled in me by the righteousness of Christ. They cannot be fulfilled in me by how I live practically. That, that just seems like, uh, it, it, this is almost the way it, it starts coming across. Okay, God demanded perfect righteousness. You couldn't do it. So he saved you. Then he gave you the Holy Spirit so that you could fulfill that perfect righteous demand. Then it's right back to my works. It's right back to my works. It's just supposedly now God is doing it in me and through me and for me through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we all know we're not going to ever meet that. So how how many, look, how, how, how much would I have to fail to not meet that perfect righteous standard of God? I would only have to fail one time. So I'm never going to meet it. So what do you mean that, that I, yeah, I see this, this is where we start having major problems with Christianity. Let me read this all again, all right? I know I've got to hurry. Huh? What time is it? Man, it's almost t- time's up. Okay. All right, here we go. Let me read this again. The believer lives a righteous life, not in the power of the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. The law does not have the power to produce holiness. It can only reveal and condemn sin. But the indwelling Holy Spirit enables you to walk in obedience to God's will. The righteousness that God demands in his law is fulfilled in you through the Spirit's power. In the Holy Spirit, you have life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. All right, I get whatever that means. The legalist tries to obey God in his own strength and fails to measure up to the righteousness that God demands. The Spirit-led Christian, as he yields to the Lord, experiences the sanctifying work of the Spirit in his life. For it is God who which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It is a fact that leads us, to, well, to the next point. Well, we're not going to get to the next point. We're going to stop right there. So let's read this all again. Not, not the commentary. But let's read the scriptures. All right. Here we go. Romans 8.1. I'm going to try to walk through this to the best of my ability. And I know that my explanation is not perfect, 
but I know that their explanation denies reality, right? Like I went in, hey, and, and notice how they say that. As long as you submit to him, then, then, then it's going to work. That they almost make, they almost get them a way out. Well, see, if you don't submit to the Holy Spirit, then you're not going to be obedient. Okay, well, then that means no one is ever submit, submissive to the Holy Spirit. And what you're saying is that if we submit, that we can be perfect, but no Christian believes you can be perfect. Like they, they have this, they, they speak out of both sides of their mouth. And I, and I can't, like, what are you talking about? Like, hey, hey, look. You can be perfectly obedient. Now, of course, you have to submit. And of course, no one will ever really submit. So no one's ever going to be perfectly obedient. Then why ever say that you can be? If if what they're saying is true, then I should look to myself and I should look to you and go, you be perfect. You meet the righteous requirements of the law because you've got the Holy Spirit in you and you can. And if you say you can't, you're a liar and you're making excuses. So I want a perfect church. I want a perfect church, all right? So come on, all of you, be perfect. What's your problem? And your and husbands, you should look at your wives if they claim to be Christian. Say, I want a perfect wife. Be perfect. And the wives can look at the kids and say, Come on, I want some perfect kids. You claim to be Christians. And the husband, we don't have to worry about any of that. That we're not because we're too smart theologically. No, I'm just joking. Obviously, then the wife can look at the husband and say, I want a perfect husband. Just be perfect. The wife should be perfectly submissive. The kids should be perfectly honoring their parents. And the husband should perfectly love their uh, wife as Christ loves the church. And we all know that we don't perfectly fulfill any of that. But this commentary just said that we, we that Romans 8 is teaching us that we can. That Because now we're under a new law. And this new law frees us from the old law. But we can fulfill now, because of the new law, the righteous requirements of the old law. Well, then that seems, why, that seems to be putting us right back under the old law. So I, I think this, what we're discovering is that commentaries have a hard time knowing what to do here, All right? So let's just read it, right? And I'm going to try to work our way through it. Again, I, I cannot, I cannot overstate the importance of the last part of Romans chapter seven. Paul, the apostle says these very words. I myself, Paul himself, he is speaking of himself. He serves the law of God, right? In my mind, Paul himself serves the law of God in his mind, but in his flesh, he serves the law of sin. That seems to be consistent with the fact that the things he wants to do, he doesn't do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. That seems to be consistent. Now, we've got to take that now. but So there is the reality, but then what do we find? We find an amazing, we find a, an, that, that's the, the horrible reality, and then we find an amazing reality in chapter 8. There's therefore now no condemnation. Praise God, no condemnation. Thank God for that. How do I get this? How, how did this come about? By being in Christ Jesus, by being in Christ Jesus. Now, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There, I'm, no under, I'm no longer under that law. There's the contrast between these two laws, the law of the spirit versus the law of sin and death. And what does this contrast wants us to show? Well, guess what? Now that I'm under the law of the spirit, I am free from the law of sin and death. I'm free from it. I'm not bound by it. I'm not, I'm free from it. All right. I'm free. And when I say I'm free from it, I'm free from it as far as it doesn't condemn me. I don't need it for my salvation. In other words, I don't have to keep it to be saved. It's not the basis of my salvation because it's already been kept for me. Right? Doesn't mean that there's not moral requirements there that we should strive for and, and do, but we're not doing so to be saved because our salvation is based on what Christ did. All right. Now, here we go. Verse three. So there's the first contrast. One, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, one, one of these, the law, the, the law of the spirit, I'm free. The other one, I'm, I'm basically in bondage of sin and death. Next. For what the law could not do. Now there's a contrast in what, the, the inability of one law and the ability of the other. The one law could not do that it was weak through the flesh, but God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for the sin condemned the sin in the flesh. So the law couldn't do anything, but Christ came in and did. He condemned sin in the flesh. He took care of it. And then he did so. And if you note the end of verse three, the King James does not have a period at the end of verse three. Uh, three. So the thought continues. 
He condemned the sin in the flesh that what? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in me. Well, it cannot be that it's fulfilled in me and my actions. I just, there's no way I can buy that. There's no way you can say, now it can be fulfilled in me. Now I can be holy. Now I can be righteous. Well, if if you're telling me that now I've got to, look, if you're telling me now that I can fulfill that Old Testament law, then that means I can do so and I still can't. The Old Testament law still condemns me. All right, so it's got to be fulfilled in me because of Christ. It's got to be. Um, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That has to be my position. And then verse five, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Yes, those who are in Christ, we mind the things of the spirit in our mind, but in our flesh, we still serve the law of flesh. This is in my position. In my position, I'm perfectly righteous and holy and I fulfill the requirements of the law in my position because I'm in Christ. In Christ, guess what? In Christ, I do fulfill the law of of God in me because I'm in Christ. Christ did it for me. All right, I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. Okay. Now, I know that's not perfect. But this other commentary is not perfect either. I know you can look up all the other commentaries and they're all going to turn it into what you can do, what you can do, what you can do, what you can do, what you can do. And it's just like, I don't know how Christians can sit in the pew going, amen, 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 amen. And then walk out and realizing that five seconds getting into the car, five seconds in the car, what do they demonstrate? Selfishness, there's fighting, there's bitterness, there's arguing, there's pride, there's ego, there's a lack of submission, there's a lack of love. Usually before you get out of the parking lot of the church, and our parking lot's pretty small. Some of you don't even park in the parking lot, you park on the street. Before you even back out of your parking spot, you are, in many cases, already demonstrated, wait a minute, you're not doing all of these things. And by the time you get home, you've probably broken half of the Ten Commandments. Well, you know that. Yeah, I know that. So how can we pr- turn this into a preaching that pr- all the preacher pastors do? No, 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 you see? That under this new law, boom. Now you're, you can be holy. Now you can fulfill the law. You can. Now you can. Because now you've got the spirit of God in you and now you can be perfectly righteous and perfectly holy and perfectly obedient. Give me a break. No, I can't. And then they come back and say, well, no, you won't be perfect. But it's because you won't submit. If you submit, then you would be. So I can be, it's just nobody wants to be. Well, if the fact that nobody wants to be, wouldn't that indicate that there's something really deeply wrong with us still? Because if I can do it and I don't do it, the only explanation would be is I don't want to do it. And if I don't want to do it, that would seem to say, well, wait a minute, Paul wanted to do it, but he couldn't do it. So why did Paul want, why couldn't Paul do it if he wanted to do it? Like, I'm so confused. There, this has to be a distinction between the contrast here has to be between the law of, that, that brings us to death and sin of the flesh. And now the law of the spirit that speaks of a reality of my position. It has to be. And I'll stop right there and you can throw out all your objections. But again, if you object, the best way to prove me wrong is just prove that you can be perfectly obedient. And if you cannot prove that, then maybe we all need to take a a look at this and try to figure out a better understanding. All right, stop right there. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Yeah, now now we got to figure out how to go from there to the next section because the next section is going to even raise more difficulty. It's not going to get any easier, but now at least I know that was kind of broken and disjointed, but now we can try to put it back together and then try to see how to start the next section. All right, there we go. All right, everyone have a great day. God bless.